chapter 8 here this morning, one entire verse we're going to cover today. Just one verse. Amazing thing about verse 1 in Romans chapter 8 is there's books and books and books that are written about this one particular verse of Scripture. You know, you could say chapter 8 is the culmination of uh, the seven previous chapters. Uh, you know, I've said this many times. If I, you know, and one of the things I love about this is, uh, is I've now read this numerous times, um, but I remember early on in my Christian experience uh, when I began to, to teach the Word of God, you know, and you hear me often, you know, probably one of the most quoted passages uh, that I quote from when I teach is Romans chapter 8. And if I could only teach one chapter of the Bible, you know, of all 66 books in the Bible, uh, and we talked about, you know, teaching the book of Romans, if we could only teach one book, but if I could only teach one chapter out of that one book, Romans chapter 8 would be the chapter that I would teach over and over and over again. It is so rich. We're not going to take it uh, literally just one verse at a time and teach uh, this through the whole chapter here. But uh, we are going to spend a few weeks in it because I, I truly believe when you get to the place where, and, and we'll never understand it completely. I get that. You know, the Bible says we see dimly darkly. You know, we see in part. But thank God, God knows us. But uh, we, we'll never have complete understanding until the day that we see Jesus face to face. But I'll tell you this. When you wrap your heart and your mind around Romans chapter 8. You will experience for yourself everything that Romans chapter 8 speaks of. You know, there's the security, the, the surety uh, of, of your faith and your relationship with Jesus. And, and, and it really helps to open up the rest of Scripture. And, and I hope to do that over the next few weeks as we study this together. You know, we titled the series Made Right because we realized, you know, as the Apostle Paul was teaching, that he said, the just shall live by faith. That it's not by works, you know, as Ephesians says, that any man can boast. Our salvation is a gift from God. And yet, uh, we know that, you know, as we come to God, God makes us right. Uh, we are declared righteous. We are justified. We, we've talked about, you know, just as if I'd never sinned. And we can understand that theologically, but it's difficult for each and every one of us to, to receive that or accept it. Uh, practically, you know, in our lives. That takes time. That's the, that's the process of, of that next word that we begin to study in the book of Romans, the word sanctification, where God is setting us apart. It's a process uh, of our growth and our development of our understanding as we walk with him. So here in, in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, I, I titled this morning's message, don't put a comma where God put a period. Don't put a comma where God put a period. I want to explain that to you as uh, we walk through this, but I want to take a moment. Let's read it together. I'm going to read from the NLT translation, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. We'll pray and then jump into this. It says this in, in Romans 8, 1. It says, so now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we read this one passage of scripture, may we just chew on it today over and over and over again. May we meditate upon it. May it stick within our hearts and our minds. And Lord, may it do what the Holy Spirit would purpose it to do, that it would bring about 
transformation, that it would provide for us. The very thing that you desire is, is the security of knowing, Lord, of where we stand with you. And not because of anything, Lord, that we've done, but because of what you've done and because of who you are. And so, Lord, open up our eyes to see, open up our ears to hear, to see and to hear, to receive all that the Holy Spirit has for us today. I thank you for these that are here, those that are watching online from home. God, be with your church today. Bless us, Lord, as we study your word and as we draw close to you. We pray these things in the wonderful name of Jesus. And we all agreed saying, amen, amen. So, like I said, when I, I look at this, you know, this particular passage, you know, in the original Greek language, there, there's no comma, uh, you know, after when you look at this and whatever your translation might say, there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. It should be period there. There should be nothing else. And, and the translators, you know, have taken something that we see actually in verse four and brought it back and applied it to verse one. And it's interesting if you study this out, you know, um, King James, uh, you know, when he, um, you know, put together, a, it was a team of, of scholars, 47 to 50, some say, you know, 47, some say a couple more, um, you know, that came together to put together a, what would be considered a universally accepted translation of, of the original Greek text as what we would known as the, the King James version of the Bible. And when the translators came together, obviously, you know, this wasn't in the sense, you know, they didn't give us the word of God. They basically just translated the word of God and hopefully into a language that would be uh, well-received and understandable, um, you know, by a larger group of people. Um, but yet they were men uh, again, it wasn't as when the Holy Spirit moved men of God to pin the words of God. Um, obviously, we believe that, you know, God was using uh, them, but not in the same way that we uh, got the word of God. And what I mean by that is that they were impacted by their own beliefs. They were impacted by the religion of their day. If you go back to, you know, I guess to take a rabbit trail here for a second, prior to 1948, before Israel um, went and occupied the land uh, again. Many theologians, you know, believe that God was done with with Israel because Is Israel was dispersed. They, they had no homeland. They weren't back in in the nation of Israel. Um, and so, when they read anything about Israel in the Bible, their belief, based on what they saw in history, was that God was basically done with with. Uh, the Jewish people. And so when they saw Israel, they just injected church. They made that a synonymous term. Wherever you saw, you know, Israel, they injected the word church there. So they saw them as one and the same. Well, it took until, you know, 1948 when Israel went back into the land that all of a sudden people's eyes were open. So you can read a lot of commentary before 1948, and it can be very misleading uh, with regard to God's plan for the nation of Israel. But it's more clear to us now because of the fact that, like I said, we know that Israel's back occupying the land, and so we don't have to spiritualize something. But one of the things that happened uh, during the time of King James, this was about, you know, obviously time frame of some 1611 uh, is when he commissioned uh, the writing of the what would become known as the King James Version of the Bible. Um, religion at that time is not much different than religion today, is that you have people that believe that they have to, in a sense, do something, you know, in order to be saved. 
apart from what Jesus did for us on the cross. You know, you hear me oftentimes from this pulpit, I'll say, you know, Jesus plus what equals salvation? Nothing. Jesus alone. But there's many, and we see it in the book of James, you know, that, you know, James says faith without works is dead, right? And James would say, you know, that half-brother of Jesus, you know, show me your faith with, without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. And so there's something in the heart of religious people that wants to believe that, you know, yes, I have to do something in order for God to do something, where in one sense that there is some truth to that, but everything's initiated by God. Everything starts with God. We're simply responding to what God has already done. And so, you know, when I look at this, you know, the, the King James author, the, these theologians that come together, what they've basically done, you know, is that they've, they've taken what they saw in verse four, you read that, and they've gone back and they added that to verse one. That's why you'll see some, in some of your translations, it'll have an asterisk and it'll make a notation that this was added by the translators. And that's good that they tell us that because it's good for history's sake. But what God had intended all along was, and, and there's, again, and it's a point that we want to belabor because when you study, you know, and I said, you know, the crux of the book of Romans, you find in, in Romans chapter six, seven, and eight, that, you know, in Romans six, we talk about this victory that we can have when we, again, I keep alluding back to this, that we recognize our life as hidden in Christ, that we you know, he uses baptism as that, as that example, that when we went under the water of baptism, we died. And when we came out of the water of baptism, it was unto new life that we would enjoy and experience in Christ. And I wished at that point, you know, that we could go right from Romans chapter 6 into Romans chapter 8 and, and talk about all the glory that's one day going to be ours. But the reality of your life and mine is before, you know, we reach glory, after we, you know, find life in Christ, what do we discover? struggle, trials. Uh, I, I'm, I battle with sin, and I so appreciate, you know, the Apostle Paul being so transparent. That wasn't, he didn't say that was the end of his life, but it was definitely part of his life. It was part of the things that he dealt with and he struggled with. And so when you look at Romans chapter 6, 7, and 8, to really appreciate chapter 8, you have to understand the struggle of chapter seven, and you have to also understand the victory that's ours because of chapter six, which goes back to the very cross of Jesus Christ. And so when I look at this and, you know, in Romans chapter eight, verse one, it says, therefore, now there is no condemnation for them that are in Christ. And he says, period. Okay. And as the translators would add to it, some of your translations will say something to the effect, uh, those who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And, and it's almost like as if it's to say, well, as long as if you do this, and, and again, but that's not what God himself had said. And there's something that's so freeing in this when you think about that God says, there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ. And I love in the Greek language because you know, whenever the, in the Greek language is being communicated, it always starts at the beginning of the sentence. That's why oftentimes you'll see like the word therefore, you know, when it, when it's at the beginning of the sentence, what is it telling you? It's like you, we need to ask that, stop and ask the question, what is this therefore? Or it's, it's connecting, it's a connecting word to those things that had preceded it. So now we have that word therefore, and then what follows after it. So when you read the word no, what is he wanting us to understand? No is the most important word of that sentence. No means what? No. 
There is no condemnation. What is that word? And condemnation means there's no downward spiral. There's no downward judgment from God any longer. And you go, why? Because of the struggle that we have in Romans 7? No. It goes all the way back to Romans chapter 6. It's because we died with Christ and we've risen with him. And the life that we now live, as we, we've been quoting week after week, the life that we've now lived, we live by faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. Or as Paul would go back and he made the connection to Abraham, right? Why was Abraham, you know, reckoned to be righteous for the simple fact that he did what? He believed God. He believed God. He took God at his word. And the impact that that would have uh, in his life. And so I, I shared with you last week, you know, I, there was two things. I said, you know, if you, you want to experience victory in Christ Jesus if you weren't with us. And there's basically two things that Paul draws out from Romans chapter 7. Remember, he's, he's talking about, you know, I, he, he agrees that the law is a really good thing, right? He's not arguing the fact of the law. He just says, I can't keep the law. He says, but I agree with the law. The law is good. He says, but there's, there's a battle that's taking place within me. And he said, and, and I, don't know how, I don't know how to have this victory in the sense on my own. And so what, did it, what does he do? Well, what Paul did to experience victory is the same exact thing that you and I do to experience victory. It began, there's two things. One is he confessed. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. He confessed that what? He was a sinner. You, you want to experience no condemnation in your life? No, you want to experience no downward judgment? You know, one of the sad things about, you know, chapter breaks is sometimes you lose the emphasis. I, I wish really in the truest sense, chapter six, seven, and eight were just all one big chapter. Because unfortunately, what we do is we tend to separate them and then you can get lost, you know, in the translation where when you put it together, you go, oh, oh. because the end result, oh man, the end result of knowing that we are new creations in Christ, that old things have what done what? You know, 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, old things have what? Passed away. They're gone. They're, they're done. And all things have become new in Christ Jesus. You go, man, to, to understand that, you to experience that freedom. I mean, not just theologically, but to experience it practically in your life. There, there's nothing like it. And I, I struggled all week just trying to think of different things that we've seen in life and nothing beat scripture in and of itself. You know, we, again, that's why God gave us his word to, to really comprehend this. You know, Paul admitted that he was without strength. He admitted that he was weak. He admitted that he was a sinner and he cried out in the midst of that struggle. And then when he did that, what happened? Just what will happen for me and for you? His eyes were open. And he said, and thanks be to what? To God. Thanks be to God who what? Again, you, you think about our, our part. You, again, when I look at thanks be to God, what does he say that at the end of chapter 7? Thanks be to God who what? Gives us. He gives us the victory in Christ Jesus, right? Does that have any, any meaning to you like we, we somehow earned that? No, not at all. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. It was won for us on our behalf. But we're not participants in that. We're recipients of it. And when that sets into your heart like it did the Apostle Paul's, the very next words out of your mouth becomes Romans 8, chapter 1. Now there is what? No condemnation for them 
that are in Christ Jesus. It's so freeing up, but you can't get it until you come to the place that what? You recognize that you are lost. You recognize that you are in sin. You recognize that you are weak, whatever it is in that. And then in that, you cry out to God. And when you cry out to God, and only when you cry out to God, you experience the freedom that he came to provide. And then all of, and you can imagine that when your eyes are finally open to that, I can tell you this, the entirety of scripture takes on a whole new meaning to you. It's as if, you know, I remember the first time I watched the, the Wizard of Oz when it went from black and white to color. You remember that? Some of you, what's the Wizard of Oz? I know, just forget that. You go, but it was just black. And then all of a sudden it went to color. You know, I love that expression that says, you know, when a Muslim gets saved, they see color for the very first time. And I believe that was, the, that was what Paul was experiencing. Someone who's very religious, for religious people, I mean, grace is a difficult thing. That it's a gift, you know, because again, we want to prove God right. Paul wanted to, in a sense, prove his worth. And with that, our religion comes shame and it comes guilt because you set your own standard, you know, where, you know, God wants to take that guilt from us. And again, as I, I look at this, like I said, Nothing, nothing can surpass, you know, Romans chapter 8, when we really come to that place and comprehend what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And so as, as I look at this, you know, like I said, in verse 4, I want to help you connect it here. Verse 1 and verse 4, it says that the righteous requirement of the law in verse 4 might be fulfilled in us. And, and again, I underline this in my notes here, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to to the spirit. And so when you look at, you know, Romans 8, 1, in many of our translations, it has the same exact wording where it says, therefore, there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, comma, instead of a period, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so, like I said, it's, it's by far and away, uh, this is the greatest mistranslation, I believe, in all of the Bible. It's the greatest mistranslation because of what it, what it can do and what it does to so many people here with regard to their faith, that they think that somehow, some way, you know, they have this, responsible, this responsibility with regard to their own salvation, that they're, they're going to be saved as long as they do this, you know, and that's definitely not what the Apostle Paul was desiring to communicate with us. No condemnation is what God wants us to understand. No guilt, no shame, because there remains no sin. And that's the hardest thing. You know, Jesus paid the price in full. I mean, he's, you know, uh, he's our savior. He came to save us. He came to reconcile us. He came to redeem us back to God. And when you and I, when we opened our heart to Jesus Christ, what happened in that very moment? It was, we were declared righteous, right? It was accounted unto us. All the things that Paul has been bringing out, you know, to reckon, you know, we, it's an accounting term. Everything that was on your account and my account was put onto Jesus Christ. And everything that was in Jesus' account was put onto me and to you. So we can kind of, in a sense, wrap our mind around it, like I said, theologically, but to understand it and to experience it practically is the struggle. I mean, you imagine, you know, 
for a moment, I want you to think about this. Think of Psalm 139, verse 16. The psalmist's declaration with regard to God himself. He says, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book, they're all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there was none of them. You know, we, we think about that, the, the, the book of life. You know, if you've ever heard my wife's testimony, she, she would tell you, she goes, you know what, they were doing a study in Revelation. And she said, and the pastor asked, she said, is your name written in the book of life, in the Lamb's book of life? And she said, no. So she raised her hand, you know, when, when there was an altar call because she wanted her name written in that book. Well, there's also another book, the book of life, that says that everything that you and I have ever done, everything that we've ever thought has been written down. And people used to laugh at that. You know, you can go back and read commentary, you know, uh, 50, 60 years ago. <laughs> oh, yeah. To think that you could remember those kind of details. And now we have little computer chips in our phone that can remember so much data. And to think that God could remember all those things about every single person who lives. And it's just, it, it's laughable now. Because with what? Because knowledge. Now we have knowledge. Oh, now it's not impossible as opposed to just taking God at his word. That before we were ever even born, God knew everything about us. Everything? Everything. Everything that we would ever do. Everything that we would ever think. That, that just makes your head want to explode, right? That God is, is all-knowing. I think of, you know, Hebrews 4.12, it says, For the word of God is alive and powerful. It's sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between the soul and the spirit, between the joint and the marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. Now, you think about the power of the word of God. Think about, you know, Jesus himself. You know, oftentimes, you know, in the Gospels, we, we see these words. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, right? Even before people spoke or while they were speaking, he knew what they really meant. He knew the intention of their heart. He knew what they were thinking. God sees our intentions. God, Scripture tells us, is a discerner. You know, people, I, I, maybe you've said this, and this isn't directed towards any person individually. I've done it myself. Have you ever made the, the statement to someone, well, God knows my heart to justify yourself, right? Have you ever done that? God knows my heart. And, and, and what you're saying is, this one time I'm right, okay? That's what you're trying, that's really what you're saying. In this issue, I'm right. But when you say God knows my heart, guess what? He knows your heart. And just know, that's never a good thing, okay? Because that includes the good, the bad, and the ugly, yeah. So, so we're, we're all in trouble there. You know, Paul would write this, though, in 2 Timothy 4.8. He says, finally, there's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me on that day, and not to me only, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Why wasn't Paul worried about it at that point, that God would know his heart and his intentions? Because he understood everything that he's now telling us in Romans chapter 8, because of what he shared with us in Romans chapter 6, because Paul had died. What he wrote in Galatians chapter 2, the life that he now lives, he lives by faith in the Son of God. Because it's no longer I who lives, but what? Christ in me. He, he, he started to understand, he began to comprehend that he had died with Christ and now he's alive with him. The old man was dead. The old way, the, the, all the sin, the past sin, the present sin, the future sin. 
all of a sudden, the comprehension, the light was on. And Paul realized, you know, not because, you know, he was trying to walk a certain way or that it was because of what Christ had accomplished on the cross, the power of the cross. I mean, man, to go back and to fully realize what was purchased for us at Calvary's cross and what Jesus did. And so Paul, with confidence, you know, that's, that's why the writer of Hebrews tells us, says, come boldly before the throne of grace, right? In our time of need, what, asking God for anything. You go, why, why shouldn't we be afraid? You go, because we're right with God. Well, how can I be right with God on anything that I've ever done? I can't. I'm right with God because of what Jesus Christ has done for me, amen? And then with that, then there's where my boldness comes. The invitation of God to ask him. But Paul was very much aware that one day a righteous judge would appear and we would stand before his very throne. He writes about that again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. What did Paul do when he came to that realization that one day we're going to stand before God? We're going to give an account of our life. We're, we're going to be judged by the very thought and the intentions of our life. Not even just the things that I did, but the things that I thought about. The motive of even what drove me. Sometimes, you know, we could do good things, right? But it's even my motive is impure. That I'm not doing it for your benefit. I'm doing it for my own benefit. But you can't see that. But God can. And Paul, recognizing all these things as a Pharisee, you know, who understood the sin of covetousness, that all sin begins, you know, in the heart. And all of a sudden it was like, wait a second, you know, <laughs> oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He understood the blessing of, of forgiveness to be forgiven of God, to be completely set free. That when we stand before God to recognize I've already been judged in Christ Jesus and found guilty. And the good news of the gospel is what? That Jesus died for me. He died for me. He died because of me. He died in my place. And now because I died with him and because he was sinless, death couldn't hold him down. Three days later, just like he said, he rose again from the dead. And the life that I now live, I live risen in Christ Jesus. My life is identified with him. And that's what the Apostle Paul came to understand and know. And when his eyes were just truly open to that truth, man, to understand the heart of God and the freedom that comes with that. Because so many people live in fear of God's judgment that are in Christ when we don't need to. You know, 2 Peter 3.9 says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise as some people think. He says, no, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. That's his heart. He wants every single person to repent. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, he says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. 
It says, on judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name, perform many miracles in your name. And he says, but I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. See, some people say, you know, hey, I'll, I'll take my chances. I'll, I'll, I'll stand before God. You know, I'm a good person. You know, da, da, da. They, they have this, this lofty idea of themselves and they're willing to take that chance, you know, forgetting that God is the righteous judge, right? That he's a righteous judge. And if they try that on their own, their own, you know, standards, it's a sure and certain judgment. Paul comes to this realization as hard as he tried. That's what he says in Romans 7. I tried. I tried to live according to the standard. I tried to do all these things. I did to the best of my ability. And guess what? For all have sinned and what? Fallen short. I fell short. And so he's, he's in this, this whirlwind, you know, of this moment. You know, it's like, so what do I do? Oh, wretched man that I am. He did what God would hope that all of us would do. He cried out to God. He admitted that he was a sinner. He confessed his shortcomings. He confessed his sin. He confessed his weaknesses to God. And the more he confessed, guess what? The freer he got. I want you to think about that. The more he confessed, the freer he got. And what happened? The more light he received, the more revelation became his. And in the end, he understood the victory is ours in Christ. It's not in and of ourselves. What Paul felt guilty of, you could say, in Romans 7 was gone in chapter 8. What he felt guilty of, you know, all the failure, all the things that uh, he, like I said, set out to do. He wanted to please God, but he realized in my flesh, he said, dwells what? No good thing. And so what did he do? The second, the second step of victory. The first, always, you want to experience victory in Christ Jesus, is confession. Is confess your need for Jesus. Confess that you are a sinner and that he's a savior. And then the second and the most important thing is that you get your eyes on Jesus. That no longer do you look to yourself. See, because here's what religion does. Religion says, you know, think about this. I was raised Catholic. So if you went to confession, you met with a priest. And the priest would tell you, you had to either do what? Ten Hail Marys. You have to say the rosary. You got to do this. Ten of these, four of these. Do the, you know, whatever the thing was. It was something on you to do in order for you to make it right. That's not the gospel. What did Paul say? You want to be right with God? Get your eyes on what God has done for you. He said, thanks be to God who gives us the victory in Christ Jesus. We don't earn it. I don't merit it. I don't deserve it. Ephesians again, chapter two, for by grace, you've been saved through what? Faith. Faith. Taking God at his word. Trusting God. Say, okay, God, you, you said it. That, that settles it. That, that's it. You said it in your word. And then acting upon what God says to do. In one sense, you know, when Jesus said, if you love me, he said, you'll keep my commandments, right? In the truest sense, what is he saying? If you love me, you'll trust me. If you love me, just trust me. Trust me. I, I have your best interest at hand. Don't fight me. 
Don't argue with me. Don't reinterpret my word. Take me at my word. Just trust me. Trust what I say. Because I love you. I care about you. Think of this. Psalm 103, verses 8 through 12. It says, The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. He will not constantly accuse us nor remain angry forever. He does not punish us for all of our sins. He does not deal harshly with us as we deserve. For his unfailing love towards those who fear him is as great as the height of the heavens above the earth. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. Wow. What has he done with your sin? As far as the east is from the west. And he says, and he remembers it no more. And you think about that. You go, how does God not remember our sin? Because wouldn't he, in the truest sense, if God is all-knowing, if he ceased to know something, wouldn't that make him not God at that point? And you go, why doesn't he remember it? And this is the beauty of the cross again. What happened at the cross? What happened to your sin? Did it get buried? Or did it get removed? See, in the Old Testament, what happened when the sacrifice was made? What did it do? Did it, did it remove the sin or did it just cover the sin? It just covered the sin and only did it for one year. Then you had to come back again and again. But the blood of the lamb did what? Once and for all. The effectual blood of Jesus Christ, it removed our sin once and for all. It's gone. That's why he says that he can forgive your sin as far as the east and west. Because it's not like God put it in a file somewhere. It doesn't exist any longer. See, this is what Paul began to comprehend in Romans chapter 7 to Romans chapter 8. And if you don't have sin any longer, guess what? There's no condemnation. There's no guilt. There's no shame. The invitation for me and you is to bring our sin to God and let him do what? Remove it far from us. Amen? I love what Micah 7.19 says. It says, once again, you will have compassion on us. You will trample our sins under your feet and throw them into the depths of the ocean. Think about that, how deep the ocean is. What that's telling is beyond your ability to what? To go get it. You know, someone once said, you know, when God cast our, our sin into the ocean, says he puts up a sign, no fishing. You know, it's a great reminder. He buries it in the depth of the sea. Here's the point. You can know a lot of things, but you can't know the depth of your sin. You can't know it. You go, Why? Because God doesn't want you to. And he made it virtually impossible. And how did he do it? The cross. The cross is where he annihilated our sin by the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. That your sin no longer exists. That's why he can see you perfect in his son. It no longer exists. And like I said, if you really start to comprehend this, like, the apostle Paul did, and it can only happen, you know, when you think about it, you know, Romans chapter eight, you know, it really, it, it's the, one of the greatest chapters, like I said, in all the Bible, because of just what it teaches us about the role of the Holy Spirit in, in our life, that the Holy Spirit has to do this work. I, I can't, I can't communicate this to you in a way that you're just going, okay, okay. The Holy Spirit himself 
has to be the one that reveals this to your heart, just like he did the Apostle Paul, just like he did to Martin Luther, just like he's done to many, many people who have comprehended you know, the depth of what God was communicating to us through his word here in the book of Romans. Our sin no longer exists. And the more than we confess, think about this, the more we confess, the cleaner we get. The more we confess, the cleaner we get. First John 1 John 1.9 says, But if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Jude 24, there's only one chapter in Jude, so to say verse 24, it says, Now all glory to God who's able to keep you from falling away and will bring you with great joy into his glorious presence without a single fault. He's able to present you faultless. And you go, why? And you go, because you have none when you're in Christ Jesus. Because, go back to Romans chapter 6, because you died. All your sin died with Christ. And when you came out of the water of baptism, you enjoyed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's a new life, as Paul would say. Therefore, for persons in Christ, they are a new creation. Old things are what? They're gone. They passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the joy of being born again. And then to think about it, as we started the book of Romans, I said, you know, Paul, like a good prosecuting attorney, right? He's, he's doing something to bring us all to the place in chapters 1, 2, and 3 that he started with the, you know, the, the person who was, you know, totally away from God, moved his way into the religious people all the way up to then, you know, those who, you know, think that, uh, man, they've got their act together. And he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul with painstaking care, made sure that we understood we were all guilty. What do you do when you're, when you're guilty? And you go, I need an advocate. <laughs> I need an attorney. First John chapter two says we have an advocate. We have an attorney. Aren't you glad that Jesus is your attorney? And guess what? He's never lost a case. If you, if you, no, seriously, he's never lost a case. If you invite him, you know, to be your advocate, to be your attorney, you are in good hands. 1 John 2, 1 says, my dear children, I'm, I'm writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. We have an attorney, it says, who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. Does Jesus condemn us? Oh, he can. It's not his heart. He's not willing, what? Second Peter again. He's not willing that any would perish, but that all would come to repentance. But if you want to stand before God on your own, guess what? You can. And he will look at you that day and he will say, depart from me, you workers of inequity, for I never knew you. Or you can go like Paul and go, man, I have tried to live you know, a good life. I've tried to do all these things and I can't do it. And guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to confess that to God, a wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Because I believe your word to be true, that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. He says, and thanks be to God who gives me the victory that's in Jesus Christ. And because of that, there's no condemnation. There is no downward guilt. I have no sin, no shame. I, don't, I can go to bed every single night and go, ha, I am free because of what Jesus Christ has done for me. And that's what set Paul free. Understanding that truth. And only, like I said, the Holy Spirit can work that you know, within us. And so really quickly, just before we go, I, I hope you're, you're a note taker on these, these things that I'm just about to share with you here. 
What stories then do we see in Scripture where Jesus removes our condemnation? Because I'll tell you, that's the greatest downfall that people have. It's their past. They, they can't move forward. They're bound. They're, we talk about this. We saw it during COVID all the time. Victimization, right? Victims. Everybody's a victim of what? Your past. Where in the true sense as a believer, I would share with you, I go, we don't have a past. All we have is a hope and a future in Christ Jesus. And you go, oh, that sounds, you know, pie in the sky. And you go, no, that's the reality. That's that when we get it, when it finally sets in in our heart, like the Apostle Paul, yes, in one verse, you're going to be going, oh, wretched man that I am. And the very next verse, you're going to go, and there's now no condemnation. There's no guilt for them that are in Christ Jesus. You go, what happened? It's the realization of, of crying out to God, confessing my need for him knowing that he is a savior. That's why he came into this world. He already knows all that. We, people, you know, we don't, want to, we don't want to admit the failure. We don't want to admit the struggle. But the more we confess, the cleaner we are. You know? John chapter 8. Remember the woman caught in adultery. Think about this. What did Jesus do? She was guilty of sin, right? They brought her before Jesus. And she had accusers. Remember, I want you to think about this. He's your advocate. Jesus, when he walked on this earth, tried to look at everything through the, 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 the lens of him being our attorney, okay? If you, if you can get this down, it's so free. Because it's not that you're innocent, it's that you have a good attorney, okay? She wasn't innocent. She was guilty as sin. She was caught in the very act. But what did Jesus do? One by one, he eliminates her accusers, right? Writing in the sand, right? And then he turns to her, and what does he say to her? He goes, woman, where are your what? Accusers. Think of him as an advocate, because that's what he came. That's what he wants to do. In everything that he did on this planet, as our advocate, as our attorney, he's constantly removing the accuser. What is Satan considered? What is he called in, in Scripture? The what? Accuser of the brethren. That's what the devil does. He accuses you. Go back and study the book of Job and see it. Going before God, you know, doing what? Accusing, accusing, accusing God, accusing Job. That's what he does in your life and mine. Paul was set free from that because of the cross of Jesus Christ. He says, woman, where are your accusers? And what did she say? What was her words? I have none. Why? She had plenty. Jesus drove them away. He eliminated them one by one. And guess what he did? He eliminated your accusers and mine as well when he hung on that cross. It didn't mean that we weren't guilty. He paid the price for my sin and your sin. And what, what left her in that moment? Her condemnation. When you think about it, if there's nobody there to accuse you, what do they find you? Innocent. Innocent. Does that mean that you were innocent? You go, no, you're found innocent. Thank God we have an advocate with the Father. Amen? Jesus, the righteous. The second, you know, uh, John chapter 4, the woman at the well. What did Jesus do? He goes out of his way, right, to get her. He's, he's an advocate. He's an attorney. He's looking for someone to set free. And he goes to her, and he sits down. It's the heat of the day. It's hot. It's noon. The women of the city went out early in the morning when it was cool, but she's an outcast. Nobody wants to be around her, so she goes out at noon, and Jesus is sitting there at the well. And he says, hey, if you knew who, you know, 
can you get, give me a drink of water? She's like, you know, what are you, you know, a Jew talking with the Samaritan? He's like, hey, if you knew who was asking you for a drink, you'd be asking him for a drink. And leads into this dialogue. And she's, she, he goes, because the water that I give, he said, he who drinks of this water will thirst again, but the water I give will never thirst again. So she's like going, I don't want to come back to this well. Give me that water. Jesus knowing exactly what she needed. He says, oh, that's fine. He goes, well, hey, go get your husband. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. He goes, that's right. Uh, this one and the five other ones that you've had, and now the guy you're living with who's not your husband, and what does she do? He, he calls her out. And she goes, oh, I perceive you to be a prophet, right? But why would Jesus do that? Again, that was her shame. That was her guilt. That's what she was reminded of every single day when she went to that well. It was because of the lifestyle that she was leading. Jesus went right after it and called it out. And allowed her to do what? To bring that as a confession before Jesus. And then what did Jesus do? He offered her living water. And when she left, she left with no guilt and no shame. Because immediately, what did she do? It says she ran back to the city and she did what? She told the men. Not the women, she told the men. Probably the very men that she'd been with. And told them, oh, this one. And then it says, and they went out themselves they ran to Jesus and they said to her, we didn't come because of what you said. And we don't believe because of what you said. We believe because of what he said. Well, that wasn't a put down for her. What that was saying is you, you found an advocate. You, you found the attorney. You found the freedom. You got to receive, you know, living water. And guess what? We did too for ourselves. Because it didn't come from her. It came from Jesus himself. He came into this world to save sinners. He came into this world to set the captives free. He came into the world to remove the condemnation, the guilt, the shame. How about Luke chapter 8? The woman with the issue of blood. For 12 years. 12 years she had this issue of blood. Meaning that under Levitical law she was unclean. She couldn't even go to church. And, and because of that, people looked at her as what? As an outcast. Probably said, oh, you know, it's because of your sin. That, that's what's going on. Because isn't that what we do to people? They're like, oh, you know, see, look at them because of their sin. And so it's an amazing story that you need to read. Remember, Jesus is going about as an advocate. He's looking for people to represent. He wants to represent me. He wants to represent you today. Question is, will we let him? And she sees Jesus for who she is. And what does she do? Well, she knows under the law, she can't approach him. Under the law, because what? She's unclean. So what does she do? When there's a crowd that's pressed in, it says she's in the crowd and she touches the hem of his garment. And Jesus says, knowing that it says virtue went out from him. He says, who touched me? And the disciples, they, they rebuke Jesus. They're going, Jesus. They go, Jesus, there's, there's, you see all the people that are in here? Of course, Jesus, somebody bumped into you. That, that's what they're saying. They go, you know, what are you, what are you saying? You know, that somebody touched your garment. They go, how could they not? Look at all the people that are here. And Jesus goes, no, no. I perceive that power went out from me. And then it says in her brokenness, she does what? She, con she confesses it. She says, Lord, it was me. And what does Jesus say to her? Your faith. Your faith has made you well. He took away the guilt and the shame by his very presence in her life. That's what he wants to do for us. 
Who touched me? The ultimate, though, the cross. The cross, that's the picture I want to leave you with today. Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 43. The thief on the cross says there's two thieves on each side of him, right? And at first, they're both, you know, kind of, you know, saying things to him. And then one comes to his senses, right? And then he starts yelling at the other thief, like, hey, you know, we deserve to die. You know, we're murderous thieves, but this guy's done nothing wrong, right? So then he looks to Jesus and he says, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Remember, Jesus is an advocate. He's an attorney, right? What does he say? He says, today, today you'll be with me in paradise. Wow. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Think of him this way. An advocate, an attorney who has come to set the captives free. One of the last words from the cross, and he says what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. See, not only are we not condemned, we're forgiven, we're free. Like I said, sometimes that's easier to receive in my head theologically than it is to receive in my heart practically. And maybe you're there today. And the invitation you have from God is, you know what, confess it. Confess what, it, what, is, what is bringing you that guilt, what's bringing you that shame in your life. And to walk back through the process again of understanding there is now, therefore, no condemnation for them that are in Christ. Period. Period. If you're in Christ, it's letting it go. Just be reminded that every place Jesus traveled on this planet he did as our advocate, as our attorney. He is constantly doing what? Representing people and setting them free. He eliminates their accusers. And then he would always leave them saying what? Go and sin no more. And he would only say that because that's, that was a, a practical reality. If your sin's been forgiven and there's no sin, guess what you can do? You now can go and sin no more. You can enjoy the life that Jesus has for you. It's how he started his ministry, right? The very first thing Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time of the Lord's favor has come. What Paul knew, and what I hope you know as we walk through this again and again and again, it's because of what Jesus Christ has done for you at Calvary's cross. You are forgiven. You are free. And there's no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. And you can, you can begin to, if, when you can wrap your mind around just reading the story, you know, of Romans chapter 8, all of a sudden you start going, oh, gosh, that's what happened in the Apostle Paul when it finally sunk in. Yeah, we're going to struggle, but that doesn't change anything with God because he doesn't see you in the midst of your struggle. He sees you through the eyes of his son. You died with Jesus, you rose again. The struggle will always be there, but the struggle doesn't define you. God defines you. And when you see your life hidden in him, that's where the ultimate in freedom comes from. That's why Paul again would say in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, 
I like this in the NLT. It says, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. And you go back and you study, you know, each one of those. And I just close it with this. I think of, you know, the woman who came to Simon's house. You know, many believe there was Mary Magdalene, but that's not what scripture teaches. But this woman comes to Simon's house and she brings her alabaster. And usually an alabaster was something that you would offer your husband on your wedding day. And she brings this and she breaks it open and she begins to anoint Jesus with it. And she's anointing him with her tears. And what does Simon do? And says, Simon looks at this woman and he says, if Jesus was really a prophet, he goes, he would know this woman who's at his feet. And, and he wouldn't receive, you know, anything from her. And Jesus, knowing Simon's thoughts, he walks through and he says, hey, let me tell you, Simon. He goes, there, there's a guy. He goes, you know, he talks about two debtors. One is forgiven a great debt and one's forgiven a little debt. And Jesus says, which one do you think, you know, would love his master more? The one who is forgiven a little debt or the one who is forgiven a big debt? And Simon says, well, obviously the one who was forgiven a, a greater debt. And he says, absolutely, that's it. Because this woman here, you know, and you think about it, it's where Simon thought for himself that, oh, he wasn't a sinner, but she was. And Jesus put it like this. And it's what impacted the apostle Paul's life. It's what drove Paul to do what he did for God. It wasn't because he was trying to work his way to heaven. Like the woman who was there at Jesus' feet, who broke the alabaster and anointed him. Jesus said of her, he said, those who, what, are forgiven little, love little. And those who've been forgiven much, love much. And that's what got a hold of Paul's heart. He just realized how much he'd been forgiven. And when he realized how much he'd been forgiven, there was just nothing you know, that he wasn't willing you know, to do. But it had nothing to do with trying to earn the favor of God. It was understanding for the very first time that he had the favor of God because of what Christ had done for him. And so what did he begin to do with his life? And he just cried out all the time. God, I need you. I want you. I'm weak. You make me strong. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And so can you. And, and again, as we walk through this, I hope and pray that the Lord just brings greater revelation of what the cross is all about. Because the cross, church, is the power of God unto salvation. When we realize what the cross has done for us, what it did to my sin and your sin, that it isn't just forgiven, that it is gone. It is gone. You go, what would happen to you, to me? Look at all these stories that we just walked through, the freedom that people experience. So here was a woman, like I said, a sinner who'd been set free. And so what did she do? She saw Jesus as, as the all in all. So man, what did she do? She runs home and gets her alabaster, breaks it open, just going to hey, you know, I've found, I've found the best, forget the rest. And that's what will happen in my life and yours. And that's, that's what gripped the apostle Paul's heart. And may it grip ours as we walk through this. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that, Lord, as we study through Romans chapter 8, that for all of us, in a, in a sense, it becomes our favorite chapter in all of the Bible. Knowing that, God, you love us like you do. Knowing that, Lord because you've forgiven us, because there's life in you, 
that you are our attorney, our advocate, that, God, we've been set free. Lord, I pray for every heart here, every home, that, Lord, we'd know this truth. And if there's any here in the sanctuary, any at home today would say, Lord Jesus, I am just riddled with guilt and shame, that, Lord, you'd bring us to that place where, God, we confess our sins to you, that we would identify those things that have separated us from you, that, Lord, keep us from you, and that, Lord, we would bring those things to you today, knowing that the more we confess, the cleaner in the sense we are. And we'd hold nothing back from you. We wouldn't try to hide it any longer. We wouldn't try to um, justify it. But like Paul, we would just simply say, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then, Lord, thank you that you came, you lived, you died, and you rose again for us. And because our life is hidden in you, there is therefore now no condemnation for them that are in Christ Jesus. May that truth be more than head knowledge. May it be practical in the way that we live our lives each day. We love you. We bless you. Lord, we praise you as we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.